This is a podcast from Seven Vineyard. Good morning. If you're watching from home or you're listening in the car, good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are, good night. So nice to see you all. Uh, Happy New Year again, if I've not seen you since uh, we came back from Christmas. It's great to be here. My name's Owen. I'm one of the co-lead pastors of the church. And I want to ask you the question, who loves January? Oh, yes. I've got some fellow brethren in the room. I love January as well. I'm really optimistic and, and positive at this time of year. Sorry if you're not. Um, I, I love it. I am full of excitement. Uh, I've got a whole new year ahead of me of possibility and potential. Isn't it exciting? Um, I'm even excited because maybe inflation will come down and interest rates will come down. Maybe even uh, we will have a change of government this year. And uh, some of you, uh, you know, are probably thinking to yourself, hang on a minute, where's this going? You know, the truth is, isn't it, that um, uh, politics and the economy are, are not easy things to put your trust in. They are not always reasons to have hope. And, um, and there's a couple of reasons I would suggest for that. One is, one is that things change, right? I mean, we, there's no guarantees that um, the inflation won't go back up again or interest rates won't stay high. There's, there's no guarantees that the conflicts uh, that we're currently seeing in the Middle East um, and indeed in Ukraine and Russia is, is actually going to get less and, 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 and peace is going to break out. There's no guarantees of that. Okay, these things are not easy things to put our hope in. But also, these things are not easy things to put our hope in because we all have different circumstances. So what's good for me might not be good for you. So for instance, I'd quite like interest rates to come down because I've got a mortgage. Um, I, you might have savings accounts and no mortgage and you'd quite like interest rates to stay high. You might quite like your current occupants of Downing Street and the White House and you don't want them to change. So there's, we all live in this kind of wonderful, diverse world where um, uh, the, the, the sort of things that we might put our hope in um, aren't always as solid as they might seem. And um, as we look to 2024, I want to ask you uh, to consider that we need to put our hope in something more permanent and universal than politics and the economy or whatever else that we might put our hope in. Now, as with all... Christian sermons, the simple and short answer to the question, do we need hope? And who should we put our hope in? Of course, the answer to that question is... Jesus. Well done. Right. Okay. So that's it. I've done my talk for today. Of course, the answer is so often Jesus. And, um, you know, I'm not suggesting for a minute that's not the case. However, um, the idea that uh, Jesus is the solution to all the world's problems can become a bit of a cliche and lose its power. And so today, I want to offer you some thoughts on why I do think that Jesus is the permanent and universal basis for hope that we should find a uh, uh, confidence in putting our hope in this year. Um, And I want to do it as a preface to our new box set series that we're starting uh, this term on the book of Acts. We're going to be going right through the book of Acts. And uh, I want to talk today about why Jesus is a permanent and universal basis for hope um, as a preface, as a preamble, if you like, to studying the book of Acts. Now, if you don't know the book of Acts in the Bible, it's actually in the New Testament. That's the kind of the, the last sort of 20% of the Bible um, at the back of your Bible if you've got a paper Bible. And um, it's actually part of a two-volume box set or a two-series box set. 
Um, uh, according to uh, scholars, it's written by a person called Luke. They're not to totally sure he, uh, who this Luke is, but it's written by a person called Luke. The first volume is called Luke, and the second volume is called Acts. You cannot separate these two books. They're written by the same person, and even the start of Acts is a bridge from the book of Luke. Okay, so think of Luke and Acts as two volumes uh, by the same author. And uh, I'm going to read to you, first of all, from Acts 1, verses 1 to 2. And this is what we call the message translation. Now, for those who aren't familiar with the Bible, there's lots of different versions or translations of the Bible. Um, and this message version is designed to be understood in contemporary English. So Luke writes this. Dear philosopher Theophilus, in the first volume of this book, Luke, I wrote on everything that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he said goodbye to the apostles, the ones that he'd chosen through the Holy Spirit, and then was taken up into heaven. So he, he makes reference to the first volume. So that's the bridge, first of all. And um, as I said, scholars aren't entirely sure who Luke was, but I think most scholars would agree that it's probably a friend of the Apostle Paul. Now, if you're familiar with Paul, Paul wrote all the letters, well, not all, but quite a lot of the letters in the New Testament, um, things like Corinthians and Thessalonians and Romans. And they think that Luke was one of his buddies. Why? Because Paul actually references Luke in one of his letters, in more than one of his letters. The reference I'm going to give you now is Colossians. So if you've got a Bible, just switch to Colossians 4. You'll see it on the screen if you don't anyway have a Bible with you. And it says this... Um, Bit of a preamble, but we'll get to the point in verse 14. So this is Paul talking and writing in his letters to the Colossians. And he's writing to them at the end of his letter and saying this. My fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, sends you greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Jesus, who is called Justus. Yes, Jesus wasn't just one person. As you know, Jesus is a very common name. Jesus, who was called Justus, also sends greetings. There are own, these are, are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, by which he means Gentiles, so he's making a difference here between Jews and Gentiles, so he's saying that Aristarchus, uh, Mark, um, and Jesus, they're all Jews, um, but they're the only ones amongst his co-workers who are Jews. And then Epaphras, who is a Gentile and <clears throat> a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings, and our dear friend Luke, the doctor, <clears throat> sorry, a bit of a gravelly voice. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas also send their greetings. Now, this is really important. When you're reading the Bible, there is some continuity between what's written about the, who these people are and certainly the letters of Paul. Really well verified. We're not talking fiction here. We're talking about actual letters about actual people. And so what we're seeing here is, is that it appears that Luke is one of uh, Paul's companions. He's a Gentile. And what also is interesting is that he looks like he's a trained medical doctor, whatever that looked like in first century um, uh, Eastern Mediterranean. I mean, honestly, I, I wouldn't be able to tell you that right now. But it does chime, he, the fact that he's a doctor, does chime with Luke's desire to present an accurate picture of Jesus as possible. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, so scholars think that Luke was writing this letter either to a person or a group of people because Theophilus actually means God lover. So it could be just a group of God lovers, you know, almost like a play on words. Um, they were probably living in Rome. Why do I say that? Well, because um, Luke ends the, uh, the, the two volumes of his work um, with Paul 
reaching Rome. Now, as I said, Luke is one of Paul's companions, we think, so therefore Paul and Luke end up in Rome, which really is Paul's great ambition. Paul's great ambition is to go to the capital of the empire and preach Jesus in that place. And, and, and exactly, if you get to the end of Acts, you'll see that's what happens. So, in terms of timing, we think that Luke and Paul reached Rome somewhere around AD 60. Um, Paul died sometime between AD 60 and AD 70, um, and Luke would have been writing this around about that time. Now, it's really important as we look at the account of Luke and Acts to really try and understand as best, as best as we can what the world was like at the time that Luke was writing this. We need to try and understand what was going on in that context, because although, as you'll hear in a moment, there is some similarity with what's happening in the Middle East right now, the reality is it was a very different world to in which you and I live now. And we need to be careful when we read the Bible to not read our present into what we're reading on the Bible. Okay? What we need to read is what, what, as much as we can what the context of the Bible is. And it's interesting as well, right now, we're, we're in a period of great investment in academia and academic research into the context, the historical context of writings like the Bible is throwing new light on exactly what the world was like at that time. And that's really important. It's helping us understand uh, the Bible and similar writings in the context in which they were originally written. So let me just give you a bit of an overview. I think it's really important for us to understand that that 130 years between 63 BC and 70 AD, okay, 63 BC and 70 AD, about 130 years, in what we now know as Israel, but then would have been called Judea and Galilee, that was a time of great geopolitical conflict and tension. And you might go, well, that's, nothing's changed, has it? Well, no, to some extent it hasn't. But back then, this is what was happening. In 63 BC, the Roman general Pompey captured Jerusalem and established his rulership through a client king, or several client kings in that area. Religious conflict uh, between the polytheism of the Roman Empire and the monotheism of, uh, of Judaism, um, the oppressive taxation of the Romans, and the really unwanted imperialism was creating a festering tension in this land. Okay, which often erupted in violence, culminating in the massacre of the population and the destruction of the temple and the walls of Jerusalem in AD 70. And if you don't know that, then that's a really important moment in the history of the Jews, where the Romans invaded, they laid siege to Jerusalem, they massacred the population, they broke down the walls and they destroyed the temple. Fortunately, happily, Judaism... Uh, rabbinic Judaism emerged out of that and continues as a wonderful tradition today. However, that was a significant moment in the history of the Jews, and it is also a significant moment in the history of the church as well. So the Jewish-Roman uh, stroke historian, um, uh, who was called Josephus, he was actually one of the Jewish rebel leaders, switched sides to the Romans, but was also a useful historian. And uh, uh, even today, um, historians will look to Josephus as a, as a reliable source of insight into what was going on at this time. He said, from one end of Galilee to the other, there was an orgy of fire and bloodshed. From one end of Galilee to the other, there was an orgy of fire and bloodshed. Okay, so this was... I mean, if you think that that area of the world at the moment is in conflict, you've got to understand how much more conflict was going on at this time. And during the 33 years of Jesus' life, Judea and Galilee were like a tinderbox waiting to explode. Only 
37 years after, uh, is that right? 37, yes. 37 years after Jesus died, Jerusalem is crushed. The temple is destroyed. And, uh, and we can see this boiling cauldron of political and religious tension all the way through Luke's letter. Now, if you've ever read Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or John, which are the accounts of Jesus' life, and struggle to understand some of the stuff that's going in there, because some of it might, I mean, if I, am I the only one that thinks some of it's a bit difficult to understand? No? Some of you are shaking your head saying, no, that I agree. I, it's difficult to understand, right? There's lots of stuff in there. Even Jesus says lots of stuff which is confusing. Why is that? Well, because we fail to understand that, that at that time, the place where Jesus was living, the, the, the environment that he was living in was a boiling cauldron of conflict and tension. And it was only, it was building and building, and it was going to explode in AD 70 into violence and suffering, and effectively what you might call genocide. As we can see, the Jews at this time would have been desperate for a saviour, someone to put their hope in. So how does Luke describe this? Well, first of all, Luke looks, we look in Luke 1, 32 to 33, the, the, the rather wonderful images that we, we think about at Christmas. Uh, Luke 1, 32 to 33. This is what the angel Gabriel said to Mary. Her baby will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over, his, over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Where it says he'll give him the throne of his father David, that is a political royal statement. Right? We're going re- to resurrect the, 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 the royal family. This Jesus, this baby is going to be, well, he's going to be a descendant of his father David. He's going to be the king again. We're going to have a king. And that would have been in direct opposition to the Roman rule at the time. And this king would reign over Jacob's descendants forever. Jacob, we know, is also called Israel. And his kingdom will never end. These, these are political statements that angel Gabriel is saying to Mary. Uh, Luke then repeats Zechariah's words. And again, remember, this is Luke repeating uh, what's been said um, through tradition. Luke 1, 68 to 71. Zechariah is um, John the Baptist's father. And he says this, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us. A horn is a metaphor for power. A horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. It's easy when you read the Bible, particularly at Christmas, to see that in an abstract way. It's something to do with Christmas, but really we're more interested in Christmas trees and presents than we are understanding that this was a geopolitical tinderbox. Okay? Do you understand this? That what was going on here, I'm trying to point, point out, is, is that these statements were being made at a time when Roman occupation of Judea and Galilee was at its height. And that the anger and the resentment and the hatred uh, uh, amongst the Jews was, was, was absolutely boiling. Luke then writes about the Pharisees' anger with Jesus for socialising with the Roman tax collectors. And there's loads of examples of this, but I'm just going to give you one. Luke 5, 27 and 32. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up and left everything and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. 
But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and the sinners? And Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now we could think, and reading that, we could think, oh, that's just a kind of, like, kind of, it's a, it's, a, it's an issue of holiness. It's a kind of uh, religious thing. Well, yes, it was, but it was also a political thing. That these were the hated people. The tax collectors were acting on behalf of the Roman Empire, and they were extracting tax from the common people, often ripping them off and taking a cut for themselves, and then really giving all this money to the, the imperial war machine. You know, this is, this is the world in which we're living, and sometimes we can fail to see the impact of these words. Um, Jesus, uh, you know, as I said, there's loads of examples of Jesus mixing with the tax collectors, and all the time, the critics of Jesus were saying, you're eating with the enemy. You're eating with the enemy, with those who hate us. Although Luke doesn't actually talk about this, I'm just going to mention it anyway, because I just think it reflects the lawless corruption at that time, and that is the death of John the Baptist. Um, and... Um, yeah, I can't help but think of uh, the uh, execution of Jamal Khashoggi, the, um, the Saudi-American uh, journalist who was executed at the orders of, apparently, the orders of the Saudi king. Um, when we read about John the Baptist being decapitated because, um, because, it, because uh, Herod, who was the local dictator, um, asked his daughter what he, she would like because she want, he wanted to give her a gift, because she that did a nice dance for him on his birthday. And the daughter's mother, who wanted John the Baptist dead, told the girl to ask her father for the head of John the Baptist on a plate. And this was the type of thing that was going on. That is disgusting. And, and, but this just reflects the lawless corruption that uh, existed at this time. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount reflected the social and the economic inequality that was festering across Jewish society. And um, although Luke only re records some of the Sermon on the Mount, we've got, we've got a more extensive description of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, but you'll be familiar with that. Um, Matthew talks about that. But in Luke, in Luke 6, 20, 21 and 24, 25, this is what Jesus says. Just listen to this within the context of great inequality and hatred and pain. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. The poverty and the deprivations of most of the population is clear to see. Uh, through, through, the, through the writings of Luke. And, and, and Luke describes, and again, you, we read the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, as a kind of, oh, it's just a wonderful miracle. Isn't that beautiful? No, no, no. This existed in a time of great inequality. These people were starving. And Jesus amassed quite a following simply because he provided food en masse. And he healed people. Like, when, when we think about Jesus healing people, he was healing the poor. He was healing those who were vulnerable and on the margins of society because of their illness. He was healing people who could not work because they had diseases or disabilities that prevented them from working. Like these were people on life's edge. 
And when we read about these things, we have to take off our uh, 21st century spectacles and we have to say to ourselves, what was happening at the time? It was a time of huge inequality. And we, we see Luke repeatedly describing how Jesus challenged this inequality. Now, as we read through Luke, it's clear that Jesus becomes increasingly powerful as a leader because of those miracles. I mean, those miracles weren't just acts of wonder. They weren't just like, if we saw someone perform a miracle, we might go, oh, that's incredible, like, whoa. But if that miracle was something that we needed, we would feel it very differently. So say, for instance, you were dealing with a, you know, a terminal disease or you were dealing with a life-altering disability or something like that, and Jesus comes along and heals you. Your reaction to that is very different to if you weren't in need of Jesus. So as you can imagine, Jesus became a very popular leader, very popular, very powerful, and the people, the crowds were following him. And again, Luke, Luke reflects this in what he says. He records a conversation between Jesus and his disciples in Luke 9, 18 to 20. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? Just note that word crowds. Who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, God's Messiah. Luke is clear that Jesus was God's Messiah. And as if to ratify that conversation, immediately after that, Luke records what is called the Transfiguration, which... It's kind of like a mystical, dream-like event on the top of a mountain that Peter, James, and John were all part of, three of the disciples. And, and, and they went up to the top of the mountain, and then they have this mystical, dream-like event where they see Jesus talking with Moses and Elijah, two great figures of the Old Testament, two great figures in Jewish history, as if to confirm that Jesus is this great person, not just any old person, but the Messiah. This is Luke's intention. Luke wants his readers to understand this. So Luke's thesis is this. Look, Judea and Galilee are a boiling cauldron of political and social tension, where the Romans and the complicit Jewish leaders are facing off with the majority of the population who are poor and deprived. And from within this majority of poor and deprived people, and we need to understand this, Jesus emerges as a revolutionary leader who has given them hope that he has the divine authority to overthrow the evil authorities and to restore justice and mercy. No wonder he had a following. But Jesus, Jesus was one step ahead of everyone. Jesus knew this wasn't going to end well for him. And Luke records this. Three times Jesus warns his disciples that he's going to be killed. Three times. Here's the first one. Luke 9, 21, 22. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the son of man, referring to himself, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed. And on the third day, be raised to life. And that's just the first prediction that Jesus made. There's two more that Luke records. And this all kicks off around about Luke 9. And I don't know if you've read Luke yet or you've listened to Luke uh, as part of the Bible binge we've started with Luke deliberately and if you haven't joined in do get involved with the Bible binge I listen to it at 1.75 speed 
So it's very easy to listen to. So, I mean, like you can just do it when you're cooking dinner or in the car or something like that. So don't feel like you have to go at a kind of normal pace. Just speed it up. Because what we're trying to do is encourage you to listen to it. And, and we're trying to encourage you to listen to it. You don't have to get into the detail of it. Just listen to it. You're going to hear things. You're going to notice things that you wouldn't normally notice if you were plodding through it slowly. So stick it on 1.75, or even 2. I can't listen to 2. I can't actually hear it. But uh, 1.75, just about hear that. And, um, and what you'll notice is, is that from Luke 9 onwards, the language and the metaphors become more divisive and disturbing. And this, for those of us that are kind of familiar with Luke, this is where, you, like me, you'll probably go, actually, I find it quite hard. Because there's some things that Jesus says there, and there's some things that are going on that just seem really weird. And what we tend to do is when we don't understand them, we just kind of ignore them. We don't need to ignore them. We just need to understand the context that's going on at the time. And so what's going on is that Jesus knows he's going to die. He knows he's going to be killed because he is the, kind of, he is the number one leader against the, uh, the authorities at that time. He's leading a revolution. Like crowds, thousands of people are following him. Why? Because he's fed them, he's healed them, and he's preaching a revolutionary message. And so Jesus warns his disciples about the cost of following him to his death. Because he knows he's going to die. And what's more, I think he knows they're going to die for it as well. He says, are you sure you want to... There's an off-ramp here. If you want to get off, you could get off. Jesus is accused of being the devil by a crowd of people when he casts a demon out of someone. To which I almost feel like Jesus loses his temper with them a little bit. He's like, what? What? You listen, you read it. It's like, how can, how can I be the devil if I'm casting a demon out of someone? Like, like a, a kingdom divided against itself will not stand. How is that even logical? And Jesus says, you know, you're a wicked generation. I find that, like, that makes sense to me in the context, but on its own, it just looks a bit weird. Uh, Jesus criticizes the rich for trusting in their wealth. And, and, and for telling them that they should use their wealth for the benefit of the be, other people. Jesus did not mince his words. He really didn't. They were living in a very unequal, divided society where the poor were suffering hugely and there was just a small group of people who were enjoying the wealth. And he criticizes them. He uses powerful allegories and metaphors, stories that is, to make his point. And, and I think, Ben and I were talking about this on our recent um, edition of the podcast we recorded this week. Jesus and Luke, they use hyperbole to make their point. And, and Paul, the apostle, also in his letters uses hyperbole, exaggeration, to make his point. They were good communicators. They knew how to get their point across. And so when we think about some of the things that we read about, if it sounds like just hyperbole or it sounds just like, gosh, that's an extreme example, well, it's to make a point. But not to us, necessarily, but to those who, to whom Jesus was speaking. And his war of words is always with the corrupt religious leaders and the Roman stooges like Herod and Pilate, who do the bidding of the empire. You know, I want to say this as well. Jesus, uh, we've, we've heard a lot about the post office scandal this last week, haven't we? And obviously, someone like um, uh, Bates, what's his name? Alan Bates, you know, who's just, a, just an amazing example of someone who's just served incredibly without wanting recognition just to uh, right this injustice. Um, but also there was a, is it Lord Arbuthnot, I think his name is? Uh, you know, a member of the Metropolitan Elite, you know, who's actually kind of reached out and actually 
actually has really been helpful in kind of bringing this situation to a place of um, uh, national consciousness and, and fighting for justice. Jesus isn't like Lord Arbuthnot. He's like Alan Bates. Okay, Jesus isn't one of the elite who's kind of reaching out to try and solve this problem. Jesus is one of the poor majority, and he's emerged from that poor majority. Nazareth was considered to be one of the poorest towns in the whole of uh, Galilee. And, um, and so what we see here is, is that Jesus isn't like a benevolent member of the aristocracy who's reaching out to help the poor majority. Luke is absolutely clear that Jesus is one of the poor majority who is also descended from King David. It's no surprise to Jesus. Three times he says he's going to be killed. It's no surprise to Jesus that he's killed. He sees it from a long way out. He knows the path that he's treading. He knows he's going to get killed. And he knows that there's going to be a coalition of the religious leaders and the Roman stooges who humiliate him, execute him, and under corrupt false charges, kill him. And they think that's the end of the revolution. How do you deal with a revolutionary? Kill him. Make an example of them. That's how... That's how we see it happening across the world. Authoritarian regimes, if they have a revolution, they take down the leader of that revolution. So you just look across the world, you can see it right now. You can read about it in today's press. And that's what they did. So it was no surprise that that happened, but what was a surprise, at least to everyone at the time, was that Jesus came back to life. Pretty difficult to deal with. And that is why Luke wrote two volumes on the life and times of Jesus and his followers. It wasn't because Jesus was a great politician or a great military leader. It wasn't because Jesus was a great economist or an efficient legislator. It wasn't even because Jesus was a great priest or a great teacher, although some would argue with that. We all know that politicians, generals, economists, legislators, priests, and teachers have their flaws and weaknesses. They come and go. They get seduced by power and wealth, and they struggle to maintain their integrity. We all know that's true, right? There's few that avoid it. I think Jesus is worthy of our hope, and that Jesus is a permanent and universal basis for hope, particularly as we move into 2024, which promises to be you know, an exciting, if not destabilizing year. Because in the words of Paul in Philippians 2, 6 to 11, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name and that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's why Paul thought that Jesus was worthy of being a permanent and universal basis for hope. Jesus was the permanent and universal basis for hope in Paul's words, because he made himself nothing. He did not lord it over others, but he served others with justice and mercy, which of course eventually got him killed by those who he was challenging. 
But you can't kill that sort of life. You can't kill it. It's enduring. It's eternal. And that gives me hope. The hope that carries us through the ups and downs of life. Through our times of illness and our times of wellness. Through our times of need and our times of plenty. Through our times of sorrow and our times of joy. Through our times of anxiety and our times of peace. As we start 2024, in what will be a tumultuous year, no doubt, may our hope be placed in Jesus. Because he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He did not exploit it to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, and by taking the very nature of a servant, became made in human likeness. Why don't we pray? Thank you, Jesus, that you did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or used to your own advantage. Rather, you made yourself nothing, and you take the, took the very nature of a servant and was made in human likeness. Please give us the humility to behave like that, to behave like you. And as we feel tossed and turned by the challenges of our day-to-day -day lives, the pain and the suffering that we all carry at times, the anxiety and fear that grips our lives, Would you strengthen our hope in you and make it a firm foundation for us? As we get washed by the waves of conflict, of uncertainty, of fear, anxiety, and all the challenges of that life that roll across us, may our hearts be steadfast in hope in you this year. And may our lives be made so much better because of our hope in you. And as we uh, pray, I just want to encourage you to reach out in hope that God would bring peace in conflicts that you're aware of and care of the most, whatever they may be. Whether it's conflicts and pain in your own life or in the lives of those you love or conflict and pain that you see presented to us in the press every day across the world. We bring those things to you, Jesus. This sort of hope cannot be killed. It cannot be extinguished. 
it is worthy of our attention. It is worthy of our trust. If you're feeling um, anxious, if you're feeling fear, I just want to encourage you just to talk with someone you know, to pray with someone you know, to bring this stuff and raise it in the context of the hope that we have in Jesus. And may God give you freedom from that anxiety and fear. even if your circumstances don't change. And uh, I just encourage you to pray with someone you came with, or if you'd like some prayer, just um, make yourself aware to uh, myself, Claire, Megan, um, Joel, Julia, anybody you've seen up here, uh, or indeed anyone else you trust, just uh, feel free to just get some prayer this morning. Don't go away without doing that. Or arrange to meet up for coffee or chat over Zoom and just pray. Let us be a people that work together and carry each other because we have the common hope in Jesus. Amen.